How much Wikipedia do you read on a daily basis? <laughs> she can't answer that. Can't answer that. But the real answer is a lot of Wikipedia. <laughs> Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. Today on the show, we explore the magical and mysterious world of management consulting. Based on our analysis, we recommend that you stay with us. That'll be $1 million, please. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 36. I'm Joshua Hall. And I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Welcome back, Daniel. Thank you. It's good to be back. Yeah, it's good to have you back. It's always weird uh, to be in the studio without you. Talking to yourself. I assume tumbleweed rolls by, crickets chirp. It's very lonely. Yeah, it was kind of weird. Last, I feel like last week was a Frankenstein of an episode. Yeah. We had all this stuff from the cutting room floor <laughs> that was piecemealed together into an episode. Hopefully it was coherent. No, I'm glad you did it because I know that we, we tacked on that outreach piece at the end and it is so important. Um, the people realize they have this opportunity. So I'm glad you got it in there. Dan, this beer we're drinking tonight is one that I've been excited to bring into the studio for quite a while just for you. I'm excited to have it. Tasting a lot of hops here. Yeah. We're drinking the Sierra Nevada Torpedo Extra IPA. It sounds dangerous. And Sierra Nevada is a pretty major brewery. Are they doing anything interesting? I kind of think of IPAs coming out of a lot of the smaller microbreweries. They originated in California, but actually, I was in Asheville, North Carolina, and Sierra Nevada opened a second brewery faci- brewing facility right outside of Asheville. While I was there, I was talking to the bartender and you know, I was having a flight, which is what I like to do if I go to a brewery I haven't been to before. And he was telling me, Sierra Nevada, unlike a lot of breweries, when they do an IPA or pale ale, they only use whole hops. Not crushed up pellets that are kind nope. of chunked together? No. So it turns out a lot of other breweries to get that hop flavor, what they'll do is at the end, they will do what's called dry hopping. Right. Yeah, we've done this. Yeah. So dry hopping, and just to make sure everybody knows, there's a couple ways you can get hop flavor into the beer. And so hops can either add that bitterness that a lot of people don't like, or it can add sort of an aroma or a floral bouquet to the finished product. And there are actually a couple different components of the hop that do this, right? There are these things called alpha acids that are contained in the hops that give that bitterness. And those tend to come out when the hops are boiled. So these are hops that are thrown in during the brewing process. That's right. You have to boil all the ingredients together for several hours typically, and then you can put in hops at that stage, and you, that's what gives you this bitter flavor. Is that what you're saying? Yep, absolutely. So when the beer is referred to as the brew, that's because a lot of beer making is this brewing process. But there are these other flavor compounds from the hops that are called volatile oils. And this is where a lot of the flavor and aroma comes from, and based on the name, they're volatile. If you boiled these for too long or at all... Ooh, ooh, can I ring in? They yes. they evaporate? Exactly. Wow, oh, fantastic. See, science does come in handy <laughs> and periodically. Word, yeah, we'll have to do the word origin of volatile. I'll look it up. So anyway, the way you get these flavors and aromas that aren't just bitterness is you do what's called dry hopping, and that is you add these hops after the brewing process, kind of at the end. And so a lot of brewers will... Be it, you can control this a lot more by adding these hop pellets, right? And we've done that before. Does everybody know that hops are a flower of a vine? Yeah, we should post a picture of hops. The issue that Sierra Nevada had, being a brewery that wanted to only use whole cone hops, 
from the plant was that the typical way you do this is you have like a tea bag method, right? You've got a big, well, you can imagine like a tea bag stuffed full of hops and you yeah, stick you're, it you're in your bag. You're steeping some organic material in a bag so Absolutely. it doesn't float around. And this is okay if you're a home brewer like we were and you've got five gallons of beer in a little bag that's probably the size of a yeah, it fits on the stovetop. It's fine. Bag, right? But what happens is, if you're doing this on a more industrial scale, right? In their case, with let's say 150 gallons of beer, you need a really big bag. Well, that's what they did. But what they found was that even after a couple of days of steeping this giant bag of hops, the center of the bag was dry. The hops in the center were actually still dry. So what that said to them was that they were actually missing out on extracting some of those volatile oils from the hop plants. So what they did, put their heads together, and apparently they actually were sketching things on napkins, and they created this thing called a hop torpedo. I guarantee that person who drew this on a napkin was drunk, but go ahead, tell us about it. <laughs> I'm certain they were drunk. Uh, so the way this hop torpedo works is it's actually a vessel, a tank, that holds 150 gallons. And so they brew their beer, and then they very slowly, I think flow rate of about three gallons per minute, goes slowly from the original tank into this torpedo that contains 80 pounds of hops. Wow. So is it like dripped over the top? Are we doing column chromatography yes. on hops? So effectively what they're doing is they're slowly circulating the beer from the original tank through the vessel with the hops, sometimes through a second vessel with more hops, and then back into the original tank. And did you see this apparatus? No, I did not see the apparatus. Uh, they just drew it on a napkin. It doesn't actually exist. <laughs> well, and the cool thing is they can actually monitor the the hot flowers and determine when they've maximally extracted all of these oils. And so what they say is this enables them to really pack a hop flavor punch without just adding lots of bitterness. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. So this is the, the scientist's approach to molecular gastronomy, really. You're, you're pulling out the exact flavor compounds you want and not everything you don't. Yeah, and I thought this was fascinating. So it still has quite a bitter kick, and I really like that about it. Yeah, it does. So that's what we're drinking, this original beer that they make with this torpedo. This is the Torpedo IPA. It's 70 IBUs and 7.2% alcohol content. And they claim that even though it's 70 IBUs of bitterness, it doesn't come across as harsh because the bitterness is backed up with a lot of hop flavor. It could be all the marketing you just did for them, but it does have a, a smooth finish to it, which is surprising. It's got to be in my mind, though. You know, I actually expected it to be less bitter than it is. I think, I mean, this is a pretty hoppy beer. Yeah, it's, it's an IPA. It's not a Pilsner. I mean, my wife definitely made the bitter beer face yeah, yeah, <laughs> when yeah. she tried this one, but I thought it was cool, a neat way that science uh, kicked in to solve a problem, and that is how do you get more flavor out of your hops? Should have gotten a PhD in that. Well, thank you for sharing that, Josh. That was really, really fascinating. Shifting gears, I'm really excited about what we're going to do actually for the next two weeks, Dan. Oh, two weeks. This must be important. This is important. So actually a few weeks back now, we brought in a friend of mine who was in town into the studio Dr. Laura Terry. And so I met Laura uh, back in my undergrad days. She was one of the first people I met when I first went into the research lab. And the thing about Laura is she went through her PhD at Vanderbilt and then did a postdoc at Princeton. But then during that process, decided to step off the research track, did a 90 degree turn and entered into a management consulting job at one of the largest consulting firms in the world. Now, when you say management consulting, I have met consultants, right? And and I think I knew some people who went into consulting, but I'm not sure it's obvious what consulting is. Well, I will say this, Dan. I knew nothing about what being a consultant actually meant until 
I started talking to Laura when she took this this job. And it really, as I've spoken with her over the last few years, I've really become fascinated in this career track. And once I learned a little bit about it, I've actually come across students who are interested in uh, going this route. And this would have been something that was a complete mystery to me before. But I think we're going to hear this from the interview um, today, and we're going to complete it next week because we had a lot of things to talk to Laura about. I just found this completely fascinating. It's just a totally different way to use your PhD. This is really a unique career, I think, in a lot of ways. Yeah, and a really exciting career. So this week, we will ask Laura about what a management consultant does, uh, what it's like day to day. And then next week, what we're going to do is find out how she got there. How do you make the transition from being a postdoc to going into this world of business and air travel and excitement? Yeah, and of all the people I knew going through my training, I think Laura would have been the most likely to become a faculty member, a tenure track faculty member. So it's really interesting, I think, to hear about what led to her making this change. Let's hear from Laura. So we've got Laura Terry, good friend, here on the show in the studio with us today. Laura, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Hello, PhDs. Hello, uh, Josh and Dan. My name is Laura Terry. I'm an associate with McKinsey and Company. I've been there for about two and a half years, but I'm doing that um, as a former scientist. So I did a PhD at Vanderbilt, did a postdoc at Princeton in molecular biology, and I left the bench about two and a half years ago to enter the world of management consulting. Now, you said former scientist, but I think once a scientist, always a scientist. Fair enough, I don't Dan. think you leave that behind. That's, that's part of who you are. It's true, right? I, I still introduce myself as a science nerd, right? They didn't, and I, they didn't take away your degree or something when you took the job, did they? No, they didn't take away my degree. Um, they definitely did take away the number of papers that I read. Yeah, um, <laughs> not necessarily a bad thing, depending on whether you like and reading papers. You miss papers. it every day. Well, about that. <laughs> I think there are things about my job that are a lot like being in the academic lab, right? I'm constantly learning new topics. I constantly form hypotheses. I constantly test and solve problems. And that lets me use a lot of my scientific skills. So I like this. This is, you know, we talk a lot about you're learning to think scientifically, and you don't have to be doing biomedical research for that to be really valuable training. Absolutely true, right? I think the, the logic, the problem solving, the sort of um, intuitive skills that you develop in a research lab or as a PhD fit really nicely in management consulting. My client has a problem. They don't know how to solve it. I don't know how to solve it either, but I know how to do the research, right? How to interview different people, how to pull together different facts about the market, and how to help them come up with a solution together. That sounds fairly awesome. So Laura, I bet that a lot of people listening right now maybe don't know a lot about what being a management consultant really means. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what a management consultant does and just sort of what your average or typical work life and work week is like. Absolutely. So I, de I describe my job as being a sort of professional problem solver. Um, and it may be any sort of problem that my client comes up with. So I think the best way to, to do this is to maybe give you an example of one of my first client problems. So I was part of a team um, serving a client who needed to ship vaccines from a manufacturing site to end customers. So to things like doctor's offices, uh, hospital pharmacies, that sort of thing. And those are presumably 
they can spoil and go bad and exactly. get lost in transit. Exactly, and- right? Most vaccines need to be kept at four degrees Celsius, plus or minus a degree or two during transport. But luckily, those are very inexpensive to produce, and there's not a lot of money on the line, right? <laughs> right. Okay, okay. Very expensive, and, expensive, and if you get it wrong... If it, it's expensive, dangerous if you get it wrong. Yeah, it's human health um, risk. Exactly. Huge consequences. But you can imagine that, you know, a vaccine moving in a shipping package in, say, the back of a FedEx truck in Florida in July has very different conditions than that same package if it were in a FedEx truck in Minnesota in December. They're shipping vaccines via FedEx? They don't have like a truck with... I was driving down the highway the other day and they had the compressed CO2 truck going by and it was like a cryogenic truck. Put my vaccines in that one, please. There's not a, There's not the vaccine truck. No, it sounds like it. They're just in... It, FedEx ships everything. So there are a lot of different ways you can think about shipping a vaccine. The goal is to keep it cold and safe as it's being moved. And you can think about using different technologies, like different types of coolers. You can think about putting temperature probes in the boxes and monitoring and intervening very quickly um, if there's a deviation. You can think about putting boxes inside of refrigerated trucks or re- refrigerated pods. And then you can also think about, are you using a train versus a boat versus a plane versus a truck to get it there? So we've got to figure out how can we move vaccines in a time-efficient, cost-efficient, and safe way. So we're weighing all these different parameters for our client. And, and obviously, they're an easy solution that costs $10 trillion, more than the value of the vaccine. Can't do that one. Now you've got the constraint of how do we do this cost-efficiently and safely and all of these other different factors. Exactly. Exactly. So it's weighing all those different trade-offs, right? When do you decide that you should do overnight, you know, first day rush air shipment, which is a lot more expensive than putting something on a truck? Or even if it's a refrigerated truck, it's still more expensive. Are you going to tell us the answer? Or is that a trade secret? I'm kind of curious now. Uh, So the answer is it it actually turns out to vary quite a lot. So it depends on what's the size of your shipment, right? Are you shipping, you know, 100 vaccines to a doctor's office versus thousands of vaccines to a hospital? Are you shipping, you know, in the winter versus in the summer or in what geography? So there are a lot of different variables that led us to the lowest cost and safest answer. And so what you deliver to the customer is, here is a, a checklist or a decision, decision tree or model that says, okay, it's Tuesday in February and we got to get it to Florida. So here's your cheapest overnight shipping. Exactly. Exactly, right. So we give them a model of these are the recommendations. These are the design principles for how you should handle deciding shipping your vaccine. And this is how much money it will save you. I mean, at the end of the day, we're talking about projects where we're saving companies, you know, tens, hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, it's quite a lot of money on the line at the scale where I work. So what did what did you bring? I assume you're working with a team on this, or or they mm-hmm. just send you out to go be the James Bond and like yeah. That solve was actually this. that was actually my question: is what is the the makeup of this team? I'm imagining something like like the Marvel's Avengers, right? Yeah. You each have a certain skill set, right, that you bring to the table. But what what are the makeups of these teams? Yeah, the makeup of the team was quite diverse. We had uh, two lawyers, two people with an MBA, and then I have a PhD. So a lot of different backgrounds making up our team. Um, I brought a lot of knowledge around vaccines themselves, right? The, The business people on my team brought a lot of knowledge around how to think about the finances 
Um, and then the legal people thought a lot about the language in which we communicated and some of the regulatory constraints that we had to deal with. How not to get sued based on the solution. Now, did you know a lot about vaccines going in or was that your role was to, to get up to speed on vaccine technology as fast as possible? I knew a little bit, um, but I certainly had to get up to speed quickly. And I, I've had to do that in other client situations as well. So, for example, I've worked um, with a, di- a, a manufacturer of insulin pumps, and I knew a little bit about diabetes just from research seminars I had heard, but I'd never worked on it myself. I didn't know how an insulin pump really worked, so I had to learn quite quickly. So do they basically send you to the biopharma uh, events? They're not sending you to investment banks to help with that, right? They're trying to apply your biomedical knowledge in a biomedical area. Mostly, I think they, they like to use my sort of scientific thinking and, and logic, logical reasoning skills with clients. Um, so I do, it's not confined to pharma or it's biotech? It's not or, at all. Hmm. So I've done about 60% of my work in pharmaceuticals and med devices, which naturally excited me. But I've deliberately done that other 40% of my work in non-healthcare fields because I wanted to learn new things. I mean, we go back to this, you know, the idea of being intellectually curious and enjoying the idea of learning something new every few months. And so I've enjoyed that. So I've worked on cardboard and granola bar wrappers and um, making titanium in an efficient way. Um, All sorts of things completely unrelated to my PhD. And that's okay. That's cool. That is a very wide application then. So walk us through a workflow. So let's say you have a new project, a new client. What do you do? Like, do you start out, is there a, sort of a learning period before you go actually into the field? How much Wikipedia do you read on a daily basis? <laughs> she can't answer that. Can't answer that. <laughs> but the real answer is a lot of Wikipedia. <laughs> I, I think I do a variety of things to get ready for an engagement. Right. Usually the client relationship is already established by a partner from my firm. So they have a longstanding relationship and they will usually give me just an introductory sort of primer to, to what the client does. Um, from there, I'll go and I'll interview experts. I will read a variety of literature. I'll talk to other people who have, cur- have previously served that client to, ter- to try to get smart. And so by day one, I know enough to be dangerous. So... In some ways, this sounds a little bit like getting a new client is similar to joining a new lab, right? You've got a, you know, you've got some background knowledge, but you're certainly going into an environment where there are different things you haven't learned about. So you got to read papers and talk to people, and um, there's sort of a wrapping your mind around what's going on. Period. I think that's a fantastic analogy, Josh. Um, you know, if you think about, say, grad school rotations, your first year of graduate school, you might do a Western blot in three different labs, and it's still a Western blot at the end of the day. They might use slightly different conditions, but you know fundamentally how a Western blot works. I do the same thing, right? I'm picking up tools and tricks of working in business settings and applying them from one situation to another. Yeah, and, and we're going to hopefully talk a lot about the types of um, character traits or motivated abilities that, that would make somebody listening a uh, really good fit for this. What I'm hearing is if you are the person that loves Yersinia pestis and that's all you want to know about for the rest of your life, like you're a, a real deep dive person who, who just loves the field you're in, probably not a great fit. But if you're the kind of person that loves to learn, who wants to, to learn all of science or all of, of um, something going on in the world 
and you're willing to, to kind of change tracks like that, it might be a really exciting job. This is a fantastically exciting job. It's kind of like doing rotation after rotation, right? I start a new project every two to four months, which means, you know, that frequently I'm learning a new client, sometimes a new industry, dealing with a new problem, working on a new team, right? There's a lot of new and a lot of change. And that's really intellectually fulfilling if you want to explore different things. So what's your typical week like? Um... I love to say that my weeks vary, but there's some, some things that, that hold constant, right? I typically get up early on Monday morning and take a flight to from home in Atlanta to wherever my client happens to be located. And the other boundary at the end of my week will be Thursday night. I'll take the reverse and fly back to Atlanta. In between Monday and Thursday, I'm doing a variety of things. So I'll be on the phone with experts. Um, I will call partners within McKinsey for their advice on how to proceed. I'll interview a client. I will hold a workshop with client to say prioritize solutions or to develop a new procedure. Um, I might work hand in hand with the client's finance team to get some data so that we can go and do an analysis on our own. So a variety of different things to bring together, you know, um, expertise and data to develop our solution. And is your whole team on site? Or do you have like people back at the home office that you call up the the data guy who's sitting at the computer and crunching the numbers? A mixture. So I'm always on site with a team of usually two to four people. Um, we'll have partners, so more senior consultants who will come in a couple of days a week and spend just part of the day with us. And then I have folks who never travel with me who are knowledge and research experts or who help with graphics and visual presentations and do sort of behind-the-scenes work for the team as well. Are there roles for PhDs in some of those other less travel-y departments? There are, especially in things like analytics, right? We recruit a fair number of math PhDs um, who do deep analytics modeling, and it's much less travel. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah, so I think you know, talking to people I've known, you and others who've done consulting and people thinking about consulting, it seems like the travel aspect is a big consideration that people think about when deciding if the consulting route is where they want to go. Would you say that is a very important thing for someone to think about who may be going into consulting? Absolutely. And it's very different than, say, grad school life where you might travel you know, a couple of times a year to a conference. I travel every week. For me, that's part of the adventure. I really enjoy the travel, um, and I like that I earn frequent flyer miles and can take then vacation for free. Um, that said, there are a lot of people where the travel lifestyle doesn't work. It might not work for some people with families, or it might not work if you just don't enjoy getting up on Monday morning and jumping on an airplane. Um, I, don't, I don't love the TSA line, so probably not a good fit for me. Yeah, you, you've got to get used to just, you know, you go with the flow at the airport, right? You can't get mad if your flight is delayed because there's nothing you can do about it. And you'll be unhappy all the time if you get really upset about those yeah, things. Yeah, it's always delayed. So, so tell us about, if you can, what are some cool places you, you get to go or you've gotten to go over the last few years? I've been a variety of places. Uh, right now, I'm working back and forth between the U.S. and the U.K., with a client who has locations in both sites. And so I alternate between their manufacturing facilities, which don't communicate very well. And we're trying to help them bridge that gap. I spent four months about this time a year ago living in Australia, working for a pharmaceutical company. 
Um, it was fantastic, right? I lived in Sydney, and that was one of the great perks for me was the opportunity to live abroad temporarily for the length of a project and then come back to the U.S. and still have a job here. So you didn't do the twice-a-week flight from Australia, I hope? No. When I was in Australia, I took my weekend flights to do things like go diving at the Barrier Reef. Yeah, I happen to know because we are Facebook friends that you did lots of scuba diving during that period of time. Yep. It came with great perks, right, of, of living somewhere different and immersing myself in that culture. What's, what's a downside? What's a negative of your job now? I think there there's certainly things that were tough for me coming into, right? The first is that I gave up a lot of control, right? If my client wants to meet at 7 o'clock on Monday morning, I had better be there at 6.55 on Monday morning. Whereas, you know, in grad school or as a postdoc, I would roll into the lab at 10 o'clock in my sweatshirt and nobody would think differently of it. So I have a lot less control over my schedule now. Um, I think there are definitely some people who think the travel doesn't work well for them. For me, it's still a great part of the adventure, but it's not right for everybody. Well, hopefully you enjoyed hearing that and learning more about what management consulting is. And then next week, we will find out how she got there. So if that sounded interesting to you, definitely stay tuned next week. Dan, after hearing that, do you think you would want to be a management consultant? I think it sounds pretty exciting. I do I do love to learn, and I like to learn new things all the time. So I think it could be a, a pretty cool fit. Uh, travel could be tough, but uh, there it sounds like there are other opportunities within McKinsey and other places like it that don't have as much travel and still have all the learning. You're a data analytics guy. I can work anywhere in the world. <laughs> I can work here. You know, this is one of those things. I know it's never too late, but I kind of wish I would have known about this like 10 years ago. Well, we're solving that problem for everybody listening. So uh, take advantage of your opportunities. If that sounds cool to you, it, you know, we're going to have some resources next week that will help you get there. Dan, what do you have for us for the word of the week? You've been waiting so long for this answer, I two mean, whole weeks. There is a lot of pent-up excitement oh. for the etymology puzzle this you know week. What, you know what people love? They love word origin puzzles. They probably don't sleep at night. They do. I think that is probably the primary reason most people listen is uh, for that. That is why I listen. So the, the clue last week was this lump of fungus bacteria wastes away its victims. You're a lump of fungus bacteria. I have been called that before. That is fair. All right. I have a guess. Okay. So, you know, my original thought was, you know, I was thinking lichenformis, like bacillus lichenformis. Yeah, good guess. Uh, and I got a lot of um, incorrect guesses over the last two weeks. Did you get that guess? No, I didn't. That's a good one. But I, I have one other guess. What about uh, mycobacterium tuberculosis? How'd you get there? Well, the myco. So myco meaning fungus, yes. mushroom, yep. The bacterium is kind of give it away, right? Myco meaning fungus. The bacterium is pretty self-explanatory. Uh, and then from there, I was just hoping that was right. Well, you are correct. Those are, those are Greek words. And tuberculosis comes from the word tuber, and it's the diminutive form. So tuber means lump. So when I, when I hear tuber, I think, isn't that like a term for a potato? Yeah, I think they're probably related. I do need to check on that to find out, but tuber means lump. and Although, I mean, a potato tuber really looks like nothing more than a lump. That is true. And tubercule, the diminutive form, means little lump. And so uh, when they observed tuberculosis in humans, they saw lumps in the lungs. And so that is how the bacteria got its name. So the reason it's mycobacteria is because the cultures look mold-like I don't know if you've actually cultured it. Did they make you do that? You know, the lab down the hall from me was a, a mycobacterium lab. 
And did you see them culture it? Um, I don't know if I observed. I mean, I saw pictures on slides and presentations. I also know that it grows very slowly. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, and then the the part of the clue that said wastes away its victims, uh, this was a reference to the old name for tuberculosis, which was consumption. And so consumption means wasting. This one came from Megan Bond at Rice University. So she really wove in many different layers of clues. I really enjoyed that one. Megan's a puzzle master. And our winner for that week was Kevin from Harvard. So we'll be sending you your Amazon gift card. Thanks for playing. Way to go, Kevin. Your clue for next week, if you're ready after all that. Bring it. This geological period was dominated by ancient life forms like trilobites, fish, and early dinosaurs. I'll read it one more time. This geological period was dominated by ancient life forms like trilobites, fish, and early dinosaurs. If you think you know the answer... Send it to puzzle at hellophd.com, and I'll send the lucky winner, randomly selected, of course, an Amazon gift card. Fantastic, Dan. I know I learned a lot this week about tuberculosis and about being a management consultant. So related. Oh, and about torpedo beers. And about torpedo beers. This was an information-packed episode. As they all are. We strive to make them information-packed. Not entertaining, just information packed. <laughs> That's right. The entertainment value is completely accidental. Wow, you guys really packed a lot of information in there. <laughs> uh, if you have something you'd like to hear us discuss on a future episode, or if you have feedback on a past episode, we certainly would love to hear it. So you can email us, podcast at hellophd.com. You can send us a tweet at hellophd, or you can message us on the Facebook page. Dan, do you have any advice or analysis based on your assessment of this episode? I could tell you, but I don't think you could afford it. That is certainly true. We'll see you next week. See you next week. So, yeah, introduce yourself. (laughs) We had to get the giggles out. This will be good. Hello, PhDs. Yeah. Hello. Hello. We sound like NPR. (laughs) Hello. And hello, Laura. How are you? We are so fortunate to have Laura Terry.